Our scripture passages for this morning come from 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 4 through 11, and 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. This is God's word. If you've been with us over the course of the last month, um, we are entering into studying where the series about David, the single most documented figure in ancient history, believe it or not, ancient history. And even in the Bible, he's detailed throughout the Old Testament of the Bible, particularly we'll read about him in his life in First and Second Samuel. And it begins with the birth of Samuel and this woman of prayer named Hannah, his mother, and the circumstances under which uh, Samuel was born. And we're going to learn three points this morning. Three points, very simple points. Hannah's suffering, Hannah's sustenance, and lastly, Hannah's secret. Her suffering, her sustenance, her secret, which inevitably becomes our suffering, understanding our suffering, what can sustain us, and what is the secret to being sustained. Okay, so first, let's talk about suffering. Hannah's suffering. There are lots of places in this text that show us that Hannah is very, very miserable. Verse 10, for example, says, it talks about the bitterness of the soul. She wept a lot, says she wept much. And the phrase there, bitterness of soul, literally means pain. Bitterness is this pain of the soul, 
interior pain of the heart. She's deeply, deeply hurt. And, and in, the, in Hebrew, it means, when, she, when it says that she wept, she wept loudly. It says that she was wailing. That's actually the literal uh, text here. Hannah was basically weeping aloud, crying out loud. And verse 6, when, she's told, when we're told about how uh, Penina, she rubs Hannah's nose into her condition, rubs her nose into her condition. She's very, very cruel. And it says that Hannah was provoked and irritated. The word irritated means that she was roaring with anger. So there's a flood of emotions going on here. Here's this woman. She's in enormous pain, wailing out loud, roaring with anger. She's grieving. Why? Because she's childless. She wants to have children, but she can't. And right away, the moment I say that, everybody here feels a bit sympathetic, right? We hear that and we say, oh, man, that must be really painful. But with all due respect, the way we see childlessness today in Western society is nowhere near the way it was seen in ancient times. And I'm going to explain to you. If you really want to understand Hannah's grief, if you really want to understand her pain, you have to understand what she was really going through, what she was really experiencing here. In ancient societies, a family's economic status, their wealth, it was directly related to how many children they had. It didn't matter if you were a doctor, a farmer, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, it doesn't matter, because the more children you had, the bigger your labor force was. Free labor, right? And because you had more labor that was free, everything's kept within the family, everything was done within the families, through the families, and the more of a labor force you had, the more children you had, that is, the more, product, the more productive you were. You had more production. And if you had more production in that agrarian society, that agrarian culture, you had more money, more wealth. More children directly related to more wealth. A higher economic social status. Fewer children then meant less. Hannah had none. She, which means that she is stricken with poverty. She was of the lowest status. But that's not it. Remember, only four out of ten children in those ancient times survived to adulthood those days. And you never had, there was no such thing as a social security. There was no such thing as welfare. There was no 401k retirement benefits. There was nothing like that. If you didn't have children, you literally starved to death at old age. You starved to death. Children were the key, not just to wealth, but to your economic health, your future, your actual economic security. And not only that, think about it this way. It was an agrarian culture. It was not a nuclear age back then. That meant that if your tribe or your nation had a lower birth rate, that means you had a smaller army. And if you had a smaller army, that meant it made it very possible for larger armies to come in, colonize you, take you, take you over, invade, kill you. So that means having lots of children was really, it was a matter of life and death for your country. You were declared a patriot. You were declared a hero, a national hero, if you had lots of children. Women who had children were considered heroes. When you and I, we look at childlessness, we say, oh, I wish I had children. I wish I had children. We're really, what we're really saying is, I would love to be emotionally fulfilled by having a child. But this is completely different. In those days, it was a matter of life and death. It was a matter of economic prosperity, economic security, national security. That's what it meant. So we're talking about enormous cultural pressures to have children or to be treated as nothing. Literally nothing. 
Your family, your tribe, your nation depended on the number of children you had. You were either a hero or you were completely worthless to the society. And Hannah couldn't have children. So she was worthless not only in her own eyes, but everybody else's eyes. She was a disgrace to the culture around her, to the society around her. And when you understand the cultural pressures then that go along with just the ordinary desires of having children, you realize that women then were essentially forced into an idolatry of having a large family. A family. And making an idol out of family. Making an idol out of having children. What is an idol? An idol is a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. A good thing becomes the center of your life. It's the, it's the thing about what you say, you know, because I have that thing, now I have honor. Now I feel worthwhile. Now I have meaning in life. And that thing is always greater, more important than your relationship with God. That's what an idol is. In ancient societies, women were essentially pushed by their culture to making an idol out of their family, making an idol out of having children. You were nothing unless you had children. You were nothing unless you had a large family. Now, you think, you think it's different today? You know, women were oppressed back then, right? So you think, oh, we're modern society today, right? Today, in some countries today, they try to cover up their women. They're forced to cover up their women. In our culture here, we try to expose their bodies. Some countries, they cover up their bodies. In our country, uh, in our world, in our society, we want to expose their bodies. Our culture does not say, you have to have kids, You know what it says? You know what our culture does with our women today? They say you have to be thin. You have to have a nice figure. You have to be beautiful. You have to be attractive. We take these, every culture has things, puts some things on their people, whether you're a male or a female, older or younger, doesn't matter. Things that aren't God, and we say, we tell our people, if you are not that, then you're nothing. And whatever that is, if you accept what the culture says, it's going to drive you into the ground. It's going to drive you all the way into the ground. The only way that we can escape the idols of a particular culture is by recognizing having God and his love be greater and more significant in our hearts than anything else. That's the key. That's the deep-rooted source of Hannah's suffering. Why is she weeping? That's the reason why she's weeping. Her culture is literally pressing her to take on the idols of family and children. This natural desire to have a child, a good thing to have children, has become an idolatrous thing. And it's distorted her self-image, her view of herself, her culture and society's view of her, and Panina, she's just rubbing her nose in it. And Hannah, as a result, is just miserable. And she's groaning, and she's wailing. And she's hurting. That's the source of Hannah's wounds. That's her suffering. Now, second, how does Hannah escape all this? What sustained her in this? This, I got to be honest with you. There are very few passages. I love, you know, my, I remember uh, one, of our, one of my mentors said, when you preach a text, that text better be your favorite text that week. And it usually is. You, read, you, you, you preach a text, you study a text enough, and you see the deep truths in that, and you were really moved by that. But it's very... For me, there are very few times when I pause and I find certain things so remarkable. And I just found this point incredibly remarkable. Robert Alter, he's a professor of Hebrew. He taught at Brandeis University, 
moved over to Berkeley University. He's quite the scholar. He's, um, first of, he's pretty much one of the foremost experts in understanding the Hebrew narrative. He's an expert commentator in the Hebrew narrative, the Old Testament narrative. And he points out a few things. First, right off the bat, notice the broken family dynamics here. Elkanah says to Hannah, this is, you know, you have Penina rubbing Hannah's nose in the dirt, right? Because she can't have children. Penina has children. She's rubbing her face in it. Elkanah, what's his response to, Han- to Hannah? I love you the best. That's why I give you the extra portion. I love you more. And that just completely messes Penina up. So you have Penina rubbing Hannah's nose in the dirt. But Elkanah is loving Hannah more. He takes Hannah, she does everything. Penina takes, does everything that could rub her face in the, in the fact that she's barren. But you have, you have Elkanah favoring Hannah, destroys the other wife's heart, who in turn makes Hannah miserable. You see the cycle, the broken cycle there in relationship? Robert Alter points out that there's not a, a single place in the entire Bible where polygamy where a polygamous family is depicted as anything other than absolutely miserable. There's not a single place in the Bible that shows us that. The Bible does everything to show us that uh, these types of family dynamics are horrible. This exploitation of women and your wives, absolutely horrible. It exploits women especially, but it destroys the family and it destroys everybody around. But he goes on, Robert Otto goes on to say that it's important to understand the narrative significance that these two primary characters have in Hannah's life, Penina and Elkanah. Look what they offer her. Penina, who is the national hope, right, because she has children. She's the, natural, she's the hero of her society. She represents the traditional society. And the traditional society says, you have to have children, because if you don't have children, if you, if you don't have children, then, then you're a loser, right? In other words, Penina represents the offer of society to say, build your identity on having a wonderful family. You have to have a good family, a perfect family. You have to have lots of children, good children. You have to raise them up well. And that's a trap, of course. That's a trap. But that's what she offers. But on the other hand, you have Alcana. And Elkanah actually represents our modern society. The modern society, in a way, says this. This is the way she tries to, he tries to comfort her. I love you. Shouldn't my love be greater than having 10 children? Shouldn't my love be greater than that? It's what the individualistic society today offers women. Pursue love. Be desirable. Pursue romance. Self-fulfillment. Don't build your, you don't have to build your identity on having children. That's what the old people say. Get it by being hot. Get it by having a great figure. Get it by feeling, you want to feel attractive in your life. Find love. Find romance. On one hand, here's build your life on children. Perfect family. On the other hand, build your life on perfect love. Romance. And Hannah, what does she do? She rejects both. This is absolutely remarkable. In her society, in her culture, where women are, are not, have very, very low social standing, she rejects both. Verse 9 says, Hannah, after she had eaten, 
stood up. Now, on one hand, it's written in there because that's what actually happened. But why is that in there? Of all the details he could include, why is that in there? It literally says, and then Hannah arose. That's the Hebrew word. The powerful, powerful word in a sense. Um, doesn't simply mean that she got up. It actually means when Hannah arose, it means she was resolved. She took action. She actually did something. She decided, to say, she, I'm not going to be passive anymore. Hannah decided by arising to go and pray. She decided to pray to God. She sat behind herself. She rejected all the idols, the two idols, the two great cultural idols, even in our day, who were offered to her, the idols of family, the idols of romance. Now, this isn't a person, you know, who, who lost her job and, and as a result poured her life into her family or, or, you know, doesn't have a family, so she pours herself into her job. That's not what we're seeing here. Hannah rejects both. They're both very powerful, influential idols in her life. But what she's saying is, I will not let my life be determined. I will, let, I will not let my significance in life, my meaning in life, to be determined by either. That's what she's saying. She rejects both. Real spirituality always starts there. Recognizing not just the bad things in our lives, and a lot of us have been through some bad things in our lives, have done some bad things in our lives, but it, it, real, real spirituality it always starts there. Not recognizing just those things and saying sorry, but recognizing the good things that have been offered to us. The good things. And realizing how much we've made them ultimate things. How much have we made them idols in our lives? There's nothing wrong with a family. There's nothing wrong with having children. There's nothing wrong with the love of a spouse. But to realize, Hannah realized that they were her idols. And so she arose. She resolved. She went to God. She prayed. She realized that these offers were traps. And to buy into either of those would be a form of slavery. So what did she do? She arose and she rejected them. And what did she do? She began to pray. And when she began, if you look at the beginning of the prayer, it's a very, very short prayer. But the first part of the prayer, which Charlotte read, verses 1 and 2, all about God. In it, you have this remarkable picture of who the true biblical God is. Everybody here has a particular view of God, but Hannah here is pouring herself into the reality of who God really is, the biblical picture of who God is. She's pouring herself out into the character of God. She begins and she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. You know, later on, she says, she says O Lord Almighty, the Hebrew word is Yahweh Sabaoth, which means Lord of hosts. The Lord of the multitudes. Another way of saying that, the Lord of armies. What she's saying is, you know, you know, what she's saying is, I'm not a patriot. I'm not adored by my society. I'm worthless to my society. I don't contribute at all to our national security. I don't contribute to the army. I'm not a patriot. I'm culturally worthless. But the armies are yours. The multitudes are yours. The hosts are yours. It's this phrase that refers to God's majesty, his infinity, his omnipotence, 
And what he's saying is, you are all-powerful. You are all-controlling. You are all-sovereign. Hannah is remembering this awe-inspiring, glorious, transcendent beauty of who God is. She begins by remembering that. She remembers the justice of God. You are Yahweh Sabaoth, the greatness of God. And then what she says is, Remember, look upon the misery of your servant. That's what you see in the latter part of this brief prayer. Look upon the misery of your servant. She's assuming something about God. She's remembering something about the character of God. We need to remember this about the character of God in our suffering. She's assuming that her broken heart, her brokenness, her wounds... This single, rural, obscure, barren woman matters to the Lord of armies. That she actually matters. She has to assume that. She wouldn't pray this if she didn't assume it. She's banking. She's, she's weeping. She's wailing. But she's pouring herself into one assumption. And that assumption is that this God, this almighty God, cares for me, loves me. Hannah is remembering and meditating and reflecting on the character of God, infinitely great, yet infinitely tender, infinitely powerful, and yet infinitely loving. This biblical God, this, char- this is the character of God. That's trust. She's trusting that. What is she doing? She's remembering who God is, And she's taking the deepest needs of her heart, the deepest needs, those deep desires, those great desires, and she's pouring them out into the reality of who God is. That's prayer. Now, secular, liberal people, they'll say, here's what you do with your deepest emotions. Here's what you got to take your anger. You got to take your pride. You got to take, you know, all your hurts and you just have to express it. Because if you express it, scream therapy, right? Vent it, express it. The conservative traditional culture doesn't say that. Conservative traditional culture says you got to hide it. You got to deny it. Forget it. Leave it behind. So you have traditional culture that says hide your deepest emotions and fears and hurts. And then you have secular people, liberal people who say you got to invent it, express yourself. This is what the Bible says to do. On one hand, it says you need to express it, you need to vent, you need to pour out but you need to pour it out into the character of who God is. That's trust. Pray them out into God. Pray your anger. You know Psalm 88, one of the most, probably a pretty obscure psalm, uh, Psalm 88, not many people, you won't ever, you rarely will hear, I don't think I've ever heard Psalm 88 in a call to worship because it's just, it's just despair. Psalm 88 is a psalm of despair. From the beginning of Psalm 88 to the end of Psalm 88, there is no hope. There is absolutely nothing hopeful about that psalm. It's just hopelessness and despair. But you know why it's in the Bible? It's in the Bible because who is the psalmist writing to? He's writing to God. It shows us that sometimes we're angry and we're confused and we don't even, we don't even have to get the words out. We just wail. But the Bible calls us What's this text saying here? Hannah pours it into God. Pours it into her God. 
That's trust. Processing our deepest emotions in light of who God is, the character of who God is. Prayer is to reflect, to think, to reason, to affirm. You know, if God is this, and if God is this, then I can do this. I can pray and share this. And you can pray and share it all because he knows anyway. Bring out your emotions, vent and cry and pour and wail into the character of who God is and trust. That's what changes you, to trust him. That's what's gonna strengthen you, to trust him. That's what happened to Hannah. What happened to Hannah? Look at the change. To look at the change, you have to see the petition. She says this. I'm gonna kind of paraphrase it. Give me a son, and I will give him to the Lord all all his days. And not a single razor will ever be used on his head. And you're like, what does that mean? I'm going to kind of paraphrase it again a little bit further. Basically what she says is, Lord, if you give me a son, I'm going to commit him to full-time ministry. Now, modern person will read that and say, well, that sounds like a very cheap prayer. I mean, he's just making deals with God here. It sounds very manipulative. And you may, it sounds like it's pretty manipulative if you read it through our eyes, but, and manipulating God in, in prayer and stuff like that, it's, God's not going to have any of that, right? But that's not really what's happening here. You will not understand. You don't understand what's going on unless you understand what she's really saying. Then you're going to understand the meaning of sacrifice and surrender. In those days, if you wanted to go into ministry, you had to be born of a particular tribe. The tribe was Levi. You had to be a Levite. Levites were the priests. So to be born into the priest, to go into the priesthood, you had to be born into it. You had to be a Levite. But there is a provision. If you were part of another tribe, you wanted to go into full-time ministry, you could become what they call a Nazarite. And the Nazarites, there are two marks of a Nazarite. They don't drink and they don't cut their hair. Those are the two marks of the Nazarites. So that's what she's committing here. Right? Number six lays it out. And Nazarite was essentially a lay priest, someone who basically committed themselves to full-time ministry by being the assistant of a priest, living in the tabernacle from the time that they were a boy. They would live in the tabernacle, separated from their family, pretty much for good. So what's Hannah saying here? What's she doing here? A Nazarite child will never be any help to her financially. They will be gone. Gone from her. They will make no contribution. A Nazarite child cannot take care of you in your old age because they're away in ministry. And when they're away in ministry back then, no internet, no email, right? No telephone, no telegram. What other types of communication is there, right, that we can use today? There was nothing like that. To let a child go into full-time ministry then is to let him go. All the other women are parading around with their children. Hannah would not be able to do that. Her child would not be with her. She's not even going to raise her child. He's going to be brought up by somebody else completely different. He's going to be away. Think back in time. There was no cell phones back then, right? Can't even communicate with him. In other words, all the cultural and economic and emotional motivations that would ever make you want to have a child, she's giving it all up. So why does she want a child? I mean, that was the whole reason why she was wailing in the first place. Why does she want a child? And there is the change for Hannah. For Israelite women... There was a cultural and economic and emotional motivation, much like there may be for some of our cultures today. But there was also a spiritual reason, a theological reason to have children. The cultural reason, it gives you status. 
Political reason, it, you contribute to the army, right? Economic reason, it gave you security. An emotional reason, it gave you a sense of worth. That's what a child does. But the spiritual reason for an Israelite woman, oftentimes an afterthought, it goes all the way back to the early parts of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, the first book in the Old Testament. God speaks to Abraham and says, I will save the world through your family one day. Someday, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the earth, and I'm going to heal the world, I'm going to redeem the world, I'm going to save the world through your descendants. The Israelites didn't really know what God was fully talking about, of course, but they all knew that somehow God was going to do something great through them. All Israelite women realized that when they bore a child, yes, there was a national reason, there was a political reason, there was an emotional reason, there was an economic reason, you know, there was a societal reason, a cultural reason. But all Israelite women knew, they realized that whenever they gave birth to a child, they were participating potentially in God's plan to redeem the world. And of course, you know, that wasn't the main reason, you know, reason why women had children was probably because of power. I mean, look at Penina. Penina, when she gave birth, she was just, it was a source of power and strength for her. And that, you could tell by the way she looked at her life. You could tell the, the way she treated other people. It was all about her. But Hannah had a theological reason. She had a spiritual reason. And she made that reason her center. And really what she's saying is this. All my life I wanted a child for me. I want a child for me. Now I want a child for you. Now, I've talked to many people over the course of my lifetime. You know, um, I talked to aspiring medical students. Why do you want to go to med school? I want to do it for God, they say. I want to do it for God. That's not the way Hannah's saying it here. Because when she gives up her son, and she has a son, we'll learn about this in a little bit, when she gave up her son, she gave him up. That, can you imagine? I mean, think about the one, everybody's got one of these. The one thing that you want, the one thing that you've been working all your life for, for anywhere between your mid-20s all the way to your mid-30s or your mid-40s. You've been wanting this, this one set of things and you, it's within grasp. You have it. It's yours. But to give it away. In Mark chapter 10, you have a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. Basically, he says, I want to follow you. I'm paraphrasing Mark chapter 10 in the New Testament. Jesus, he says, what do I do? Jesus says, well, I want you to obey the commandments. And he says, no, I've done all that. Jesus says, okay. He looks at the man and he says, he says, he looked at him, he loved him. He had compassion on him. He says, here's what I want you to do. Take everything you've got, everything you've ever earned, everything you've worked so hard with your hands for and your brain and I want you to sell it. Then I want you to take that money and I want you to give it to the poor. And the text says the man walked away and he was grieving. He couldn't because he had a large sum of wealth. He was wealthy. He couldn't do it. Take the sum of everything that you've ever wanted, not just physically, not just the material things that you wanted, but what that means, your significance, your sense of worth, and give it away. I don't even know what that means. But for Hannah, it was tangible. It was to sacrifice her son to give him up for full-time ministry. 
All my life, I wanted a child for me. But what's changed is he's saying, now, yeah, I want that child. But it's not for the cultural reasons. I've rejected the culture. It's not for the emotional reasons. I've given that up. It's not for the economic reasons. When I give this child up, I'm not, there's not going to be any economic reason. I'm giving him up. I, I want this child for you. I want this child so that he can participate in your ministry. That's what I would want. Another way of saying that, she says, you know, all my life I wanted to be a mother. But now, in the presence of God, I realize that I do want to bring life into the world. But I just don't, I don't want to just bring a life into the world to make my life greater. I want to bring real life into the world. I want to bring salvation into the world. I want to bring God into the world. I want salvation to come in. I used to want a baby for me, but now I want him for you and I want him for the whole world. What is he saying? Before, the main reasons why she wanted a child was cultural or economic or emotional. God was just the means. The son was the end. But now what? She's saying God, his mission, his promise, his salvation that is the end. Having a son is only the means. The son was, was just a means now. She shifted her hope. It's an amazing thing. This, if you think about the, how difficult it is for us to give up, even the little things that we want, she's shifting her entire hope, her self-image, the motivational center of her life, having a child to participating into God's mission. Now, you say, well, when I read this, that's not what I see. Aren't you reading a little bit into this? I'm going to prove to you just textually how that works. Okay, if you read further down in this text, verses 4 to 11, um, and then you go into, you know, verses 18 to 19, it says that then she went away, she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, she arose, worshipped before the Lord. Then she went back, at, went back to, to her home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, and the Lord remembered her, opened her womb. I'm going to read that one more time. Then she, you know, basically, she, she went her way, ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, she arose and worshipped. Then she went back home, and then she slept with her husband, and then the Lord remembered her and opened her womb. Now, did you hear what she, what's going on here? It didn't say that Hannah prayed, got pregnant, and then got happy, and then got inner peace, and then she started to eat, and she stopped being depressed, and then her face was lifted up. It didn't say that she prayed, got pregnant, then got happy. It actually says she prayed, got happy, even though she had no idea what was going to happen, no certainty. I mean, how many times do you think they tried to have children and it failed? But it says that she prayed, got happy. Why? It would only be the case if she had shifted her hope away from herself and to the mission of God and her son only became a means to that end. This text isn't just for mothers, okay? It's for everybody. Your finance type, you want to add real value in your life? Here's real value. Plug into the mission of God in the world. It's going to make you a little poorer. You're going to sacrifice. You're going to surrender. You an artistic type? 
You want to bring real beauty, real beauty, and the cutting edge into the world? This is real beauty. Plugging into the mission of God. See that? When you turn to God at the center and your money just becomes a means to the end or art just becomes a means to the end or having children or having a nice family just becomes a means to the end and not an end in itself, not your identity, not your significance, not your security, then and only then will you be free. What happened here? Hannah had a son. Hannah had a son named Samuel, sent him off into ministry. He became one of the great deliverers of his day, a type of Messiah, a judge, foreshadowing the ultimate Messiah to come, the great Messiah in Christ. He rose up at a time of great crisis and he led people to victory over their enemies over and over and over again and he saved them. If Hannah had not suffered, think about this, if Hannah had not suffered and God gave her a child when she actually wanted a child, she would have been crushed ultimately. Samuel would have been crushed under the weight of all of her expectations. She would have dangled him in front of Penina and said, look, now I'm okay. I have one too. And on top of that, I have Alcana's love too because I'm pretty. I'm a real woman. I've got beauty. I've got the child. I've got everything. She would have destroyed her entire family. And she would have destroyed herself in the process. That's what we look for. That's what we want, don't we? That's what we want. Her family would have been miserable. Her child would have been miserable. Hannah ultimately would have been miserable. She would have been ruined. Samuel would never have grown to become the savior figure that he was. But because of Hannah's suffering, and she had, I mean, did she have any clue as to who she was going to be? Because of her suffering, because of her sacrifice, sending her son away, through her suffering, through her sacrifice, people were saved. Because she accepted, not even knowing where God was taking this. She just said, I will arise. I'm going to be at peace. I'm going to make my vow. I am resolved. My heart has changed. Lord, do what you're going to do. Give me a son. Now it's safe, though. I want you to know now it's safe for me to have a son. He's no longer an idol. Now, some of us say, well, that's really hard to connect with Hannah. She really loved God. She really trusted God. She trusted him a lot. And that freed her from her idols of culture. That's her. I mean, I don't have that kind of power. You know, I don't trust like Hannah. I don't love God like Hannah. You know, I know I should be like Hannah, but I, can't, I really can't. I just live a powerless life. Think of it this way. You have something even greater than Hannah. And, and Hannah points to it in her song here, in her, the prayer that's printed in chapter 2. In her song, in her prayer, she says, God has lifted me up, taken away my disgrace. Another way of saying that is that I was low, but God has lifted me. I was, I was disgraced. God has lifted me up. God has reversed my condition. Verse 4, if you read verse 4, the, bow, the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. Seven, perfect number, completion, right? But she who has had many sons pines away. She's talking about the reversal. 
He's saying my life has been reversed. Verse 8, God has taken the poor off the ash heap. What is that? Ash heaps right outside the city. They were garbage dumps. Back then, there was no waste management system. Ash heaps were garbage dumps. They were foul, foul-smelling outside of the city. And so they were burned up in ancient times because waste management was such a challenge. You know, walkways were a challenge for that matter. They would take the waste. They would send it outside the city. They would burn their garbage. And any person who was actually rooted around in the garbage dump were considered the poorest of the poor. I mean, we see that in some countries even today. And they would die there. And, and here she's saying, you've taken me out of that ash heap. The text says that God has taken the poorest of the poor out of the ash heaps, sets them up with princes, and takes princes and sends them down into the ash heap. There's a reversal. How does this happen? We have the secret. What was Hannah's secret? We have that secret. When Jesus Christ was led outside the gates of Jerusalem and executed in the garbage area, he was crucified outside the city. The dumps, the ash heap. It was the most disgraceful of executions. And, and that's Jesus out in disgrace, out in weakness. And what did everybody say? You see? See what's going on here? I mean, if he was truly the Messiah that God had sent, he would never have been crucified like that. He would never die grace, you know, like that, with disgrace. And the reason why they were thinking this way is because they were looking at the forefathers of the Messiah. They were looking at people like Samuel and Samson and David. These people were victorious through their strength and through their glory. But they looked at Jesus and they said, you see, he is weak. He's disgraced. He's not like David. He's not like Samson. He's not like Samuel. This person is disgraced. He can't be the Messiah. And the big mistake is this. They were looking at the forefathers. They weren't looking at the foremothers of Christ. They were looking at the men who were the forerunners of Jesus, not the women. Because if you looked at the women, you would see over and over and over again that a foretaste of the gospel resides. The real gospel, the work of Christ, always came through the women too. The women too. Women were always overlooked. In fact, he continually brought salvation of the world, the salvation of the world, through the barren, through the rejected, and the unwanted. It was barren Sarah, not Hagar, the beautiful, fertile Hagar, through whom God brings the seed of the Messiah, Isaac. It was through the unwanted Leah, the unpretty Leah, the wife that Jacob rejected, not the beautiful Rachel that he wanted, through which Judah, of which Judah is the line of David and the line of Christ. Judah was the royal messianic seed. It's Samson who was born to a barren woman. It's Samuel who was born to the suffering and disgraced woman in Hannah. Not in spite of her suffering, but through her suffering, through her disgrace, Hannah prays and salvation comes. If you looked at the foremothers of Christ, you would have known, it's printed in your bulletins, I think, in the call to worship, what Isaiah is talking about when he's talking about the Messiah, that the one who comes to save us will suffer disgrace and be crushed for our iniquities. What does that mean? Jesus experienced the reversal that Hannah was talking about. How can we, all of us here, broken and sinful and selfish, we have impure agendas and motives all the time, how can we be lifted up? How can we be seated in the heavenly places in Christ? 
John chapter 17, Jesus' last prayer for all believers. He says, I pray. I want those that you've given to me to be with me, to see my glory. That was his prayer, to be with him. How can we be with him? How can we who are sinful and broken and selfish be seated on the throne? Because in order for us to be with him, Christ had to go to the ash heap. On the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I'm pouring into God my suffering. I'm pouring into God my disgrace. I'm pouring into God my weakness, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate disgrace. When God himself turns his face away from Jesus, he's saying, now I am suffering the ultimate disgrace, the ultimate rejection, the ultimate suffering. I'm pouring it out, and I'm crying out. I'm pouring into God. My God, my God, he says. And yet, he was not heard. And yet, it was silent. Jesus Christ was punished for our disgrace. He he experienced the divine justice of God, and yet he was still, do you realize what was happening on the cross? He was experiencing the total wrath of God for our sins, God had rejected him for our sins, and yet he was still praying and pouring into God. The women in the Old Testament show us that Jesus is not just the ancient king, the coming king, the redeeming king, the king of justice, the king of glory, but he's also the suffering king. He suffers for us. Until you understand the true spirituality of women like Hannah, you won't know what Hannah knew. Hannah didn't know exactly how God was going to use suffering to bring salvation. You may not know. In your suffering, you may not know how God is going to bring, uh, how exactly he's going to use that. God is doing 10,000 things for your glory, for his glory and for your good every day. We don't see it. We can't, we're confused by it oftentimes. We don't know how he's working. Sometimes we try so hard to figure it out. We think that, oh, it's down the road, we'll understand. The goal is not to understand. Maybe Hannah never knew. Maybe Hannah never knew. I mean, Samuel was born, she sent him off to ministry, but how, did she live long enough to know? Maybe she never knew, but she prayed and she wept and she cried out and she trusted and she acted because she knew that the Lord, Yahweh Sabaoth, saw her. Do you? Do you trust that? We have the cross. You know, on the cross, we see that God doesn't bring life out of death, that God brings life out of death through suffering, through his own suffering, he brings life out of death. He brings total restoration, total redemption, total reversal. Everybody sees Jesus on the cross, they're saying, what good can come of this? What good can come of this? And yet through that disgrace, salvation is offered to the world. If you're faithful to him, don't give up. Put God in the center, even during your suffering, because he hears. Pour into him because he hears. I'm going to close with this um, story because it's to sum up the last part of this 
you know, we, we addressed the issue of children, but what about Elkanah? Elkanah says, you know, my love should be greater than 10 sons. My love should be greater than 10 sons. And, and Hannah rejects that too. You know why? Because she knows that she's loved by God and that has become enough for her. I wish I could, I could go into more. I could probably go into this another 10 minutes. I will not do that. You know, but in Jesus Christ, when you receive him by faith and God pardons all of your sins, you are beautiful in his sight. Doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. You are beautiful. You are clean. To sit there and deny that, to reject that, is to say that what Jesus did wasn't enough for you. That's not, a, that's not your humility talking. That's your pride. Will you come to him? You know, there's a story. I'll end with the story. I, I say it multiple times because it was so moving when I first heard it, and I heard it many, many years ago. But there was this pastoral convention, and in this pastoral convention, um, this is a true story, this pastoral convention, uh, a bunch of liberal pastors were meeting um, uh, at this convention, and it's kind of like a, a conference for pastors. And at the end of this uh, conference, um, they had an open mic for pastors to be able to come up and share, you know, kind of testimonially, like what they've learned and what they've gained. And in walks this prostitute, this African-American prostitute walks in straight up to the mic, and you can only imagine the horror and the gasping of these pastors and their wives, and they're just bracing themselves. What is this woman going to say? And this woman comes up to the mic and says, last night I had a dream. And people are like, oh my gosh, she's going to share. What is she going to share? She says, I had a dream. And in this dream, all of you were there. And I was dressed in white. And Jesus was there. And Jesus asked to dance with me. And so I was dancing with Jesus, and you guys were all around watching. He says, as I dance with Jesus, he leans into my ear, and he whispers, and he says, I want you to know I'm crazy about you. Is that love enough? Is the love and compassion and mercy of God enough? You want proof? Look at the cross. Every, you don't even have to look at your life. I mean, I see God's faithfulness in my life weekly, daily. I see it. There are times when you really see it. There are times when you don't see it. There are times when you really see it. You've got to look further back than that. Look at the cross. Therein lies the faithfulness of God and the love of God and the compassion of God and the mercy of God and the justice of God, right? There he is for you. Is it enough for you in your suffering? Will you trust him? Let's pray.